Boys World podcast, brought to you in association with MS Amlin Boat Insurance. Hello and welcome to the Waterways World podcast. I'm Bobby Cowling, the editor, and with me for this episode is regular contributor to the magazine, Andy Tidy. Over the years, Andy has penned numerous articles covering waterways history, archaeology and architecture, along with his experiences of boating the waterways as a roving trader. Together with his wife Helen, Andy runs the floating business The Jam Butty, which travels the network from spring to autumn each year, selling jams and preserves. But Andy is also something of a canal historian, with his YouTube channel, Life at 2.3 miles an hour, exploring the rich history of our waterways, particularly those of the West Midlands. Given all this, we had a lot to discuss when we spoke in December 2020, so let's take a listen. So Andy, as a roving trader, what's this year been like for you? Well, I I suspect we've probably done 25% of what we normally do. Um, As soon as the lockdown finished, well, well, okay, if I go back a bit, um, we we are a roving trader, but we also supply a local four-star hotel. And the first thing that happened was that they closed down, and then the canals closed down, and then we... uh, uh, and then, and then, of course, uh, we, we couldn't get going until the end of July. And even then, we weren't sure that we really wanted to go out on the canals at all because, well, it took a while to get our confidence enough up to meet people at all. You were concerned about contracting the virus. Yes, yeah. Uh, I mean, H- Helen Helen has some underlying health issues. Uh, and, and for my part, I've got, I haven't got the greatest chest in the world. So neither of us want to catch it. So we, but of course, once the levels fell sufficiently, we just went out and we just traded at the weekends and we went from canal junction to canal junction, never moving more than 20, 20 minutes drive back to, uh, to our home because we're also looking after Helen's elderly mother-in-law. Right. So it's been, it's been tough then for you. It has. I mean, I suspect we probably sold 25% of our normal volumes. Right. The season before, we came back from Tipton, which was our last festival. And I remember someone taking a photo of the stall. And there's plenty of jam because we make that as we go along. But on the preserves, there was just these few odd pots. And I literally, I could put all of the pots of my savoury preserves into one little box that contained 24 jars. And that was the entire stock of the business. So we'd absolutely run out. This year, well, you can hardly notice the dent of what we've sold. Oh, dear. The good news is that preserves, by definition, are preserved and they keep, so uh, they're, they're good for two years. So, so luckily, we've still got all this next season to come and we're okay. So you're stocked up for next year then? Yeah, yes. <laughs> were there any roving trading markets in 2020? Almost nothing. Um, at the last minute, the, the Roving Canal Traders Association organised a few floating markets. There was one at Market Drayton, uh, one at Merry Hill. But um, again, at the time, we couldn't see ourselves feeling very comfortable with uncontrolled masses of crowds milling around that you can't regulate. So we were much happier to go to somewhere like Fradley Junction and more up opposite the cafe, put the signs up and then people would come along. We put a doorbell out on the sign and uh, one at a time people would turn up and they'd have a chat at a distance and, uh, and we would sell to them. Yeah, uh, Actually, it was a really nice way of selling. And we did sell a surprising amount of preserves over it. I mean, we, we, we sold far more than we thought we would, but I think people were desperate for a bit of normality and they really enjoyed the interaction. Mm. Did you find that there were more people out on the waterways this year? Non-boaters, that is. 
there, yeah, there was there were a lot of people walking the towpaths. Um, so so yes, I mean, uh, even if I just stopped the boat in the most obscure place, I left I left my signboard out with a bell on it, and yeah, you you might only have a few people come past, but they they all seem to ring the bell and say, "Can I have some?" I think they I think people were just. Uh, Using the canals as a, as a as a nice safe place to go, and uh, so so yeah, it was it was relatively busy that way. And we worked out that even if this coming season is the same, we can go out for maybe twenty weeks, and we, we can we can do all right. How dependent are you on the income? It's the icing on the cake, if the truth be told. It's it's a retirement project that Helen and I do. It it is a. I mean, it turns over about fifteen thousand pounds of 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 jam a year. But in terms of the, wow. the it's quite, it's quite a lot. Yeah. Um, but it, so, it, but but it it makes a difference in our lives. But we tend to use it. Uh, we invest it into uh, travel projects that we wouldn't otherwise do. So we've. Um, We've we've used it to to, to, to travel. Well, we travelled on the Queen Mary once, and uh, we we went to New Zealand a couple of years ago, and we spent a month out there in a camper van. Uh, so so we tend to use it for something that we would never otherwise uh, consider or have enough money to do. And how long has the business been in existence for? Um, I think about eight years. Um, it started off because Helen had an accident. Um, do you remember there was a big snow about 10 years ago? Uh, everything was closed down for six weeks. Yeah. And, um, and Helen fell over in the snow, smashed her face. And okay, she yeah. was doing, um, yeah, she blew her eye socket out and all sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and when she'd recovered, she couldn't carry on doing her academic studies because it had damaged her eyesight. And so she was sitting in the front of the boat feeling miserable and saw all the fruit coming past and thought, well, I know what, I'll, I'll make a bit of jam. My mum used to do that. So she made one or two pots and then she made some for Christmas hampers, uh, which went down very well, but, but then relatives would say that. And then it came up to a... a uh, there was a, a school um, charitable event, you know, in the summer fair. And so Helen went up and did that. And much to her surprise, even just doing it up in a very amateurish way, she sold £250 worth of product. Uh, so she started to think, well, maybe there's a business there. And the business would be on a boat. It was always designed around the boat. Uh, in, in the, we started off uh, just going to a few canal events while I was still working, and we did maybe half a dozen over the course of a season, just the ones that we could get to locally. Um, the trouble is our boat's only 42 foot long, and so we would cram the, 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 the cratch, and the under, the under the floor section of the cratch full of jam, all under the bed was full of jam, and during the events, we used to sit there. Uh, it was like an Amazon warehouse. There were boxes all around us, it, and we thought, well, actually, this does work. We could sell the stuff all right, but it's not a sustainable way of doing it if we want to do this in a bigger scale when I come to finish work. Of course. Uh, so we did that for two seasons. Amazingly, we got away without it raining very much, so we didn't have any, any disastrous uh, downpours and ruined stock. But so we did it all on uh, in the open uh, but then I came up with the idea I was sitting in the lock coming down the Wolverhampton 21 one day thinking well there's a fudge boat and there's a cheese boat why shouldn't you have a jam boat and I looked at this space in the lock behind me and I thought well actually I could put a butty behind me and a jam butty's got a real ring to it and, and that's where the name came from but it took about a year or two for it actually happened the name uh, yeah the name is is great so, so you had the name f- almost from the word go Yes. What I didn't want to do, though, was to have some... I, I didn't want to... 
uh, how do I put this? I didn't want to have some floating hulk behind me. Um, I, I wanted something that would advertise the business in a stylish way that would be self-advertising. But also, that Helen has a way of letting things almost take over. So I wanted to have it so that the business could be one boat and we could live in the other one. And so the idea of the butty came about. And then one day I was going down the Shropshire Union Canal past uh, Stretton Wharf. And there was this back end of a butty, just the back cabin. And uh, I, I looked at it and I thought, oh, what a shame I've missed that. It's such a perfect back end of a boat. And went back six months later and it was on the, on the top of a shipping container. So I got in touch with the owner and said, oh, look, this is, I like the look of that boat. And, uh, and between us, we devised uh, how to make a 27-foot butty using the back end that he'd built in the 1980s that had been on two old boats. And then we put it, the front of the boat and the, and the hold was made up from the back end of an old Birmingham coal boat made out of iron in about 1900. So wow. it's, a, a really, it's a real cut and shut of two back ends, but it's very sweet. And it's just it's, uh, used for storage of stock. Is, is that its primary function? Well, we carry the stock in it. Um, it's quite it's quite good for keeping stock in because it's all low down below the waterline, so it keeps fairly cool. Um, but when it comes to festivals, we take the covers off and we've got a false floor in it that we can let, set up. And we can set that up at the whatever is the towpath height. We set the table on top of that. Gazebo sits right across the top of the whole thing, so it covers us over in the event of sun or rain. Uh, and it's, it has two legs that come out onto the towpath or into the grassy area so that people can get a bit undercover. Uh, and, and, it, and it's sort of like a – so it's like a, basically a pop-up market stall, but it floats on a boat. That's brilliant. And how do you find um, cruising with it in turn? Uh, it's interesting. You have to get used to it. It's got some real peculiarities. I always tow it on a short uh, on cross straps or what passes for cross straps. Um, so it's tightly snugged up behind me. It's not the most economical way, but it does mean that no one has to steer it. Um, because of the way the, the hydrodynamics work, it goes around um, – it'll go around – a right-hand bend like it's on rails, but it goes around a left-hand bend as though it's going on a trailer on ice and it wants to overtake you all the time. So you have to be incredibly careful. And it also it has a habit that as you go down the canal, there's a, a sort of a sidestepping of the boat and it constantly sidesteps towards the left-hand side. But once you get used to it, you just control the level of speed. And um, it's, it's kind of second nature. In fact, my problem is when I take the butty off and I start moving the boat by itself, motorboat by itself, um, that that's when it all goes wrong because it feels like you're driving a, a go-kart after having driven a lorry. Yeah, I can see that because of the reduction in weight, yes. Yeah, I mean, I'm normally on a, on a boat, you've got your turning point, your pivot point is about a third of the way back from the front. But when you've got the butty on the back, the, the, the pivot point comes way back beyond the center line so uh, the whole feel of the boat is it's cumbersome and it's slow and you and you have to go very defensively uh, and obviously if you're coming up to other boats and things you, you have to always make sure that you're going to be the one to give way but I, I, luckily I've never had any real problems I've never hit anybody um, and everybody has been lovely with me they, they, they always give me a wide berth <laughs> they see me coming and think oh I'll, I'll slow down what about at locks well, because we're pretty, we're pretty, uh, a pretty well-oiled team when it comes to locks. So we, we, the crucial thing is the two boats are seventy-one foot long. So between them, they can go through any lock. Uh, of course, if we go on the Leeds Liverpool, we strap it on the side and we just go up side by side, so we don't have to double lock there either. Yeah. So in terms of the speed of going through locks, it's the same as everybody else. It's just that as we get on the flat, 
uh, we, we're, we're just a little bit slower. Uh, I, I've averaged it out. Our, our normal speed is 2.3 miles an hour, which is yeah. why my YouTube channel is called 2.3 miles an hour. That's as fast as we can go. We can get up to three, a heady three miles an hour on the flat river. Right. Okay. Well, that's, you know, it's not, it's not, by canal speed standards, it's not bad, is it, though? No, it means that on a typical day, one boat will come up behind me faster, and and I just keep an eye on them. And when a boat comes up anywhere behind me, I just look out for a nice open space. And as soon as I've, I can see my way ahead, it's clear. I just pull over, slow right down, put myself onto the mud on the offside, and let them come past. Um, and yeah. they're always happy. Chances are, I'll probably meet them at the next lock, and they'll buy some jam from me. <laughs> yes, it's a good way of advertising your business. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, and, and I take the view I'm the idiot who chooses to tow a butty. Uh, so, uh, so therefore, it's my job to make sure that I don't interfere with anybody else's fun. Yeah, that's that's a a, a good uh, a, a good approach, I'm sure. Andy, where are you at the moment? Then are you on the boat or? No, um, we keep we keep our boat in Aldridge, uh, Longwood Boat Club. Uh, but um, we actually live in Aldridge on the end, on the edge of the, the Black Country, so that's where I am. That's where we spend our winters. So you're typically out on the waterways from spring to autumn, but you winter at home. Yeah, by and large, yes. We 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 go out at the end of April, um, sometime around the twentieth of April is our norm. We'll. In a normal season, we'll start off with the Droitwich Canal Festival, take a couple of weeks getting there, shake, shake everything down. Uh, we'll do Droitwich and a couple of others around the black country, go off and do a two-month big tour around the country. Sometimes it's London, sometimes it's Liverpool, Leeds. Um, and then we'll end up on the Grand Union on the, uh, on the set of festivals that happen down there. Um, yeah. And then back to the black country to finish the season at the end of September. Right, and then, okay. and then by the time I come back in September, I've probably got two hundred kilos of wild apples sitting in the in the hold of the boat, uh, <laughs> and I and I come back and it literally is two months of manic making chutney. I'm sure it's great fun. Um, but where do you source your produce? Well, our strap line on our jars is, 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 is a, a, a forage flavour in every jar. Uh, that actually is an aspiration. We try to put something wild into everything we make. So the. Particularly blackberries, apples, plums, um, those kind of things, we pick them wild. Where we get problems is when we make things like marmalades. Um, obviously, you, you can't get oranges and lemons from the towpath, so we have to buy those from the wholesale market. But then to try to put a bit of a wild twist in, we often add alcohols like slow gin and slow whiskey, and so we put the slow bit into it. So again, we're, we're trying to bring a bit of the flavour of the towpaths into what we make. But it's an aspiration, not an absolute. Mm. So what kind of fruits do you source from the towpath? I know you mentioned some, but... Well, um, well obviously, those are the summer fruits. The, the, the sea, we become very, very familiar with the, the seasonal cycle of what goes on. It starts mm. at the end of March when we pick the wild garlic and we make the wild garlic jelly, wild garlic uh, vinegars. Uh, then it is nothing much until we get through to the first cherries of the season, so the small plums. And then you get the uh, the cherry plums, which are the little tiny marble-sized plums. And mm. then they move up to the full-sized plums that come off in August, at the same time that you're getting the blackberries coming off in July and August. And then you start to move into the, the quince and the, and, the, and the pears and the apples uh, and the damsons that come through into September and through into October. So 
I'm very aware, we also are very aware that as we travel around the country, we find that the, the seasons change. So if we're heading south, we'll find that we run through the seasons fast. But if we're heading north, the seasons are going slowly with us. So we, we almost keep pace with the seasons if we go north. So we have to be a little bit mindful about where we're going. And because we tend to travel a similar route in the summertime, in the fruiting season, I know all the best spots to stop. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, You're not going to tell us, though, are you? Obviously. Well, well, well I could say that we always try to stop at uh, uh, Fenny near Linslade because there's a great area of blackberries. Okay. However, the local council decided to come and clean up the area and they chopped down all this fantastic area of blackberry bushes. So for two or three years, there's now going to be no, no blackberries at Fenny. But, uh, oh, but it's, it's, there's odd places. I mean, Fenny is good for those um, coming through Leamington Spa and into the Avon Valley is great for plums because um, that always has been historically the plum growing area of the country. So th- there are some sort of regions which are just strong on doing it. But blackberries, well, you get them everywhere. I was just thinking, there's very much an earthy quality to what you do. The fact that you're sourcing and preparing food, engaging with nature, um, following the seasons. It must be of real well-being benefit to you and Helen. It, it, it is. I mean, I've, I've always been an enthusiastic gardener, but I, I tend to be enthusiastic in the sense that I like, I like to, to, get, to get stuff out of the garden that I can eat. I've never been that keen on flowers. So stepping into the, into the whole foraging world is, 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 is fine. Um, yeah, it, it does. If, if, it feels like a very natural rhythm. And so, as I say, that you can tell because of the cycle of the fruits coming off, you know exactly whereabouts you are in, in the season. And, uh, yeah, there's a, a very, it's almost like a, an agrarian um, rhythm to it all. Yeah, I can see that, yeah. Um, just looking back over your period as a roving trader, are there any spots on the network that you either particularly like or were particularly commercially successful or both well um i suppose it's it's fair to say that each business has its own way of doing things we tend to do best when there are big crowds of people around so canal festivals really do work for us we probably sell 90 percent of our stock goes out to people on the bank who just come along to have a look and have a nice time uh so we 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 thrive on big crowds and our business model means that we can sustain paying quite high um rents to the organizers to allow us to do that um and uh, yeah there are other other ways of doing it where you don't well if i give you an example you could sell a thousand pounds worth of jam at a big canal festival but if we if we just set up at somewhere like fradley junction we probably sell 200 pounds now okay Mm. there's no cost at fradley but it's the same amount of sitting around waiting yeah, so yeah. canal festivals really work for us, but they don't necessarily, the bigger the festival doesn't necessarily mean the more business you do. If you take, for instance, Blissworth Festival, which is a, like a, a town fate on steroids, it's absolutely <sighs> massive. 60,000 people will turn up at Blissworth. It, it completely swamps the town. The trouble is there are hundreds and hundreds of, of, of traders, not just canal traders, that's defined by the length of towpath, but all through the fields and all through the village. There's hundreds of traders, and there's only so many pounds per person that they're going to spend. So in some ways, you do better to go to a smaller event where there's a handful of traders than something that's absolutely massive. Yeah. But you yeah. never can tell. But, but bottom line is, we know that the big festivals serve us very well. Um, 
but we don't, we don't, we're not exclusive. We're not very mercenary about it. We, we also like to go places where we feel comfortable. And there are some events where we know the organisers, we just slot into it, like the Droitwich Festival. There's probably two or three traders go there, but we always go there. We know the organising team really well. It's a, it's, it's a really nice, fun event. I mean, there's not many festivals where you can go and the barman will send a signal to you by text saying, Andy, do you need a beer? And he'll send someone around with a beer or he'll put one by the door and say, don't worry, we'll sort out the tab when we finish the weekend. Uh, it's that you, you feel very much a part of the organising committee. Delivered beer, I mean, uh, how, how do you get into this game? Uh, you know, it sounds great. Uh, and, and it's bumble holes from Mar Pardos, you can't go wrong with that. <laughs> yes, Andy, I wanted to talk to you about your vlog. A lot of the videos are concerned with the waterways of the West Midlands. What is it about that part of the network that you find so interesting? I, I simply live here. I, I, I live on the on the um, the, the Birmingham Canal navigations are pretty much uh, they 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 are they are exactly covered by the old Birmingham coal measures that stretch out from Brown Hills across to Dudley sort of area. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, as I'm sitting here speaking to you i can see out of my back window uh, and i can see between the houses out all the way out to the to cradley um, which is basically i'm looking across the entirety of the black country and in this defined area there's this 100 miles or there used to be 160 miles of of canals and they've always fascinated me because the canals out here are very much like the canals I remember back in the 1960s and 70s when I started as a child. They're almost abandoned. They're empty. You can travel for days and not see another boat. It's like my own little private playground. The thing is, hardly anyone knows about it. Mm. And if I give you a, a, a tangible example, near where I keep the boat, it's, it's Rushall Junction, uh, or it's on the Rushall Canal and Rushall Locks. And that canal there, has the top lock, has got a monitoring station on it. And on a typical season, there are less than 300 boats go through that lock. And probably half of those come from the, the boat club itself. So it's almost completely unused. Whereas you take somewhere like Hill Morton, you've got 10,000 boats going through. Now, the situation used to be quite different. Um, I mean, back in the day, uh, the, 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 the Birmingham canals were so busy that they were taking 5,000 boats a month through the Farmer's Bridge locks, and they're mm. having to build bypass canals to get around it. So I find the whole integration of the, the history and the geography of this area really, really interesting. So uh, there's so, so many canals and so little time, so I tend to focus on what's close to home. And because I travel all summer... I tend to focus on the BCN because it's close. I can get to it by bike. It's, you know, most of it's within 15 minutes drive away. And, and it, there's such a rich history to tell from this area. Yes, there is. But is this fair to say that some of the canals in Birmingham are rather down at heel? That's their charm. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm interested to know then how you feel about the many canal side developments in the city, such as the recently proposed one at Bordersley Junction where I think about 2,000 properties are planned to be built around the canal. For me, it looks to be a huge improvement to a section of the network that's not really serving any great purpose at the minute. No, you're right. I think that whole section, which actually is the the Saltley Cut, uh, which runs up from... Well, it's, it's, everyone knows it's Spaghetti Junction, but it's coming up from Salford Junction up to Bordesley Junction. That that area... um, 
oddly enough, that's that's the subject or where I'm heading to in my in my next set of, or my next video. But um, that that area is so utterly changed from how it used to be between the between the wars. Um, these days, it's just like an industrial wasteland, and you've got like Star City at one end, uh, wastelands in between, and uh, industry at the far side. It used to be back-to-backs, courthouses. It was where the Peaky Blinders, the real Peaky Blinders and the Birmingham Slogger gang, Gangs used to be based. Right. And it was a, a huge area of industry. It's smothered in uh, metal extrusion works, iron works, fabrication works, uh, steel shunting works, tube works. I can't begin to guess what that place used to smell like. It, it must have been absolutely hideous. So, so when they in the Peaky Blinders, when they have the opening scenes of them walking down the streets and there are blast furnaces and flashes of, 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 of molten metal spurting out from the sides, that really is the area around Garrison Locks and Borsley Junction. That was the bit that it looks like. And they, they refer to... Um, uh, they, they refer to the BSA. Well, the BSA factory was just about two miles up the Grand Union Canal from there. And they've played around with artistic license in, in, the, in, in the series. But that was what that area was like. But you're right, there's almost nothing left of the pre-war uh, area. But the bits that do still exist and the bit that they're preserving, which is worth preserving, is the final bit of the Grand Union as you come up beside Faisley Street to what they call Ty- Typhoon Basin and the Banana Warehouse. You've got the old fellows Morton Clayton warehouses and the Bond warehouse. Uh, there's a whole string yeah. of old canal warehouses that do still exist. And the plan is to encircle them uh, because the, the HS2 is going to come into Curzon Street Station just in there. And they're going to preserve that as a little enclave of, of the old Birmingham. And so you've got things like the Custard Factory and you've got uh, lots of the entertainment venues down there. So in a way, they're going to try and retain that section um, and to give it the feel of the old Birmingham. And that, I think, is to be applauded. Yes, that, I mean, that sounds great. You know, and that's well. It's all rather tied in with HS two. I think what's going to happen. There was a. I might got my my my, my exact names wrong. There was a railway that was coming in to Curzon Street Station, and they built this enormous great viaduct in the eighteen fifties, eighteen sixties. And in the end, the railway companies never actually finished it because they merged with whichever railway company went into New Street. But the railway. Uh, viaduct still exists so i think they're going to make that as a raised walkway that almost walk, runs right over it a bit like the elevated skyway in new york so you can you can walk right across this area of, of, of antique birmingham uh, and, and get a feel for it but that if there's one area where i feel it ought to be redeveloped and developed in a sympathetic way it, it's in this really ancient heart i mean that's where the centre of Birmingham started, the the original family that were the family of the Burms who lived in that area, they lived on in a mills on the River Rear, just beside uh, Digbeth. And so that's the true sort of spiritual and geographic and historical heart of Birmingham. Yes, absolutely. What do you feel about the developments at Gastreet Basin and Brindley Place? I, I actually favour them. I do just remember the gas street and the central sections as they used to be in the 60s and 70s. Um, actually, it's a source of great frustration. I can remember coming through and the, I can remember this, the, all the hissing and the steaming and spitting of industry, uh, but I can't remember any detail. But the greatest pleasure I've had in the last 12 months, it canal-wise, is that um, is it Hugh Potter 
has kindly given me access to all of his black and white and early early color pictures from the 1970s. And I've been looking at all of these hundreds of pictures he's, he's, he's donated to me. And I've been able to sort of fill in my memory. And I've ended up with this amalgamation of my of my childhood memories of an atmosphere with Hugh's actual photos of locations. Uh, and it's massively enriched my appreciation for what used to be there. I mean, it led to the then and now photos, which I've done for Waterways World from time to time. And it's also the quite a lot of my writing. What do you find when you look at those then and now perspectives? That industry has just been swept away. Yeah, by and large, sure. By and large, well, I mean, I mean, what's tended to happen is the industry's been swept away, and what you're left with is the back end of sort of retail sheds and light industry. So the the heavy industry's gone, and light industry replaced it. And then increasingly, all of the industry industrial sites have been bulldozed down, and the brownfield sites are being redeveloped as residential sites. So you have light Eatonville Port Loop, which is going is the is the one of the largest of the Birmingham redevelopments that's being put up based around the canals. You've got obviously all the city centre bit, which actually I think is quite lovely in its own way. Um, and then you're running down through the bottom of Farmers Bridge Locks and you've got this university centre where all of the universities and the accommodation blocks are all running down beside the Ashton Canal. And well, canals I think I think the nice thing about it is that Birmingham may keep changing and reinventing itself. And if you look at pictures of Birmingham in the 70s, when I first remember it, it's almost unrecognisable to how it is now. But the footprint of the canals is absolutely consistent. The the canals just stay where they were. And the one common theme you've got, if you want to look around Birmingham, is if you go into a spot and... Yeah, especially for these then and now type photos, you can go to a spot and identify exactly where you are because the twists and turns of the canals and the side bridges have hardly changed one iota. So I suppose if I back that up a bit, I'm not necessarily really a historian. I'm more of a geographer, but I get interested in the history. And what I used to love in doing geography was doing these cross-sections. So you'd take a cross-section across a valley, and you'd see the different styles of use of the land going across the valley. Well, I find you can take the canals running across somewhere like Birmingham, and you can use that as a cross-section to cut across the history of society in in, in the area. So and because it stays absolutely constant, you can just keep looking out onto the world outside through different different decades, and you can see how the world changes. Mm. There they stay during centuries of change. Yes, yes. I mean, sure, yeah, it, it, some of them redeveloped, but they, unfortunately, they just don't get filled in, not the central ones. Um, in fact, you can't fill in most of the BCN because it's, it's integral to the drainage system for the, for the city. So all the stormwaters flows into the, dra- into the canals and then into the rivers. But if you took the canals away, you're still going to have to put in massive storm drains. And actually, it's cheaper to keep the canals. Which is presumably why some of the less salubrious parts of that network survive. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you take the Bentley Canal, which is the one that goes down from uh, uh, from near Wolverhampton out to Walsall, uh, they took that out completely. But in order to take it out, they had to build this enormous box culvert underneath the bed of the canal to take the water away. Well, you may as well just leave the canal in place. Yes, indeed. Andy, it sounds like you've got quite an interesting story to tell about your early years uh, boating was that on the Birmingham canal navigations it's because Birmingham sits in the middle it's a crossroads for everything we tended to cross across it um, we we did 
we did a lot of runs out to places like Langothland, uh, but we often hired from the, around the Midlands, Penkridge. Um, I seem to remember we did quite a lot coming out from the Grand Union around uh, around south of Hatton, those sort of areas. What period was this, Andy? I went out when I was six or seven, so it, it would be in the 1968 sort of time, 68 to late 70s. And my dad used to have one canal holiday a year, and he really wanted to make the most of it. And he was up at six in the morning, and he was still travelling at ten at night. He was always looking for the perfect mooring spot. Wow. Other, the journeys that we took, I mean, things that I would tackle in two to three weeks, we used to take in a week. It was uh, uh, quite unbelievable. <laughs> and uh, was that a good way of... Uh... I mean, obviously kept you fit and presumably engaged in what you were doing and what you were seeing. Everything's moving so so fast and you've been pushed at such a pace. Yeah, I, used to, I, I enjoyed it a lot. I mean, I couldn't get enough of it. I, I remember uh, on a boat, on, they weren't canal boats properly they were they were the uh the, the sort of the, the wooden ones the sort of the the outboard motor type boats going down the Shropshire Union dragging a little boat out the back in the wash of the boat thinking one day if ever I grow up and I live in Birmingham I'm gonna have a canal boat I never for a minute thought this is a boy from Norfolk I never thought I'd actually end up in Birmingham and my move to Birmingham had absolutely nothing to do with canals everything to do with my career and I just happened to end up here and sure enough I was in Birmingham and yeah in my mid 40s I ended up with a boat so what were the canals like in the late 60s crumbling uh, they were at their worst really i mean i remember the last of the trade boats particularly coming through birmingham in the 1950s and 60s you were still carrying trade volumes in the millions of tons so there was a lot of trade boat movement still going around but it was right at the end so you got like the canic extension was being abandoned um, boats were laying around sunk everywhere so it, it was all weeded up, it was shallow, you were hitting on sunken cars and broken down bridges. I mean, coming through the BCN was a, a real white knuckle ride, but I got very used to my, my, my father and my brother having to sort of mechanically make things happen. So you'd come to a lock gate and it would be leaking so badly you couldn't get the thing to fill. So they'd they'd be dropping bits of canvas down the front of the lock gates to stop up the uh, the cracks or mm. uh, or'd have the lock the, the hinge the hinge on the lock gate breaking and you'd strap it up with a bit of rope to make it work. It was real sort of uh, gaffer tape and cable ties of its time. Yes. So Dead dogs, floating oil. Um, it was I mean the Birmingham sections were were, were to be honest both stunning in 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 their brutal horribleness um but incredibly atmospheric yeah yeah and then i had this gap from boating when i was oh well, i discovered girls and i discovered skiing in equal measure and and i kind of lost track of of canals and i left them behind and i i pursued yeah, yeah, yeah downhill runs and skirts and, and girls in skirts um and then kind of found them again uh probably 20 years later and the world was transformed the canals and i still go out on the canals and think wow this this is so much cleaner and more well organized than it ever used to be so for all of the complaints that go against crt and, and, and british waterways that went before i still find the canals so much better than they were when i was a child in the recent issue of the magazine we published a piece called hands-on hiring by hugh potter which provided an insight into boating the bcn in the early 1970s. Yeah, that's right. And uh, it very much echoed what you've been saying about having to negotiate obstacles and be quite inventive at locks. Yes. But I suppose it was also good fun. It was. It was a, it was a bit of an adventure. You never quite knew if you were going to get there or not. Um, 
but it does give me quite this this very laid back approach to, to traveling. I mean, most people would think twice before traveling out to the northern reaches of the BCN on accounts of the filth and potential danger beside the canals. But we do it all the time. There's one or two flashpoints that you watch out for. But I kind of get used to it. And you know, the, yeah, sometimes I run across a pile of abandoned tires or get something horrible on the propeller. It happens. It's just part of it. And you kind of just develop techniques for getting away with it. I mean, the, the, the BCN people who live on the BCN, we get used to it all the time. We find it slightly amusing when we hear people complaining about the state of canals elsewhere because they've got nothing on the things that we can tell them. <laughs> yes. So I suppose, yeah, yeah, you can consider yourself to be a hardy boater if you're regularly uh, negotiating the BCN waters, I'm sure. Yeah, you, 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 you kind of expect that every day you're going to get something around the propeller. And, and I'm not talking about something that needs reversing off, but you, you're going to go down the weed hatch at some point during the day. It's just, it's just part of the game. One thing I wanted to touch on, Andy, was that you're a member of the Boaters Christian Fellowship. Can you tell us a bit about the organisation? They normally organise quite a lot of gatherings. I'm, I suppose our, 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 we're members of it, and we're great friends with a lot of the, of, of, uh, basically, a collective of Christians who, who who spend their time on their boats, um, and you just get to know all of them all, and it's like another social group, really. But normally, they get together with gatherings, but like everything else, it's all been cancelled, and what ha- does happen happens online. Um, but it's it's a, an, a nice way to get in touch and keep in touch with uh, other people's of faith out on the water. Uh, they, they have a fantastic uh, through their their work as waterways chaplains. They do a fantastic job of looking after the needy uh, out on the waterways, which has always been a problem and always been a challenge. The canals seem to attract people who who want to escape from the rest of the world, but they ca- but of course the rest of the world carry follows them like that with baggage. And, but the the organisation of the waterways chaplains is, is is fantastic in that they can get alongside people in need and they help them out. So. Uh, it's it's a it's a great uh, it's a great organisation that helps fulfil that function on the waterways. Excellent. Well, Andy, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for your time today. Bobby, you're very welcome. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, Andy. Choosing the right insurance for your narrowboat wide beam or cruiser can be hard work but the friendly team at MS Amlin Boat Insurance will provide a quote tailored specifically to your boating needs and really take the hassle out of insuring your boat. Call 01732 223 650 or visit boatinsure.co.uk.